Thanks for listening tonight. If you'd like to listen ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed in the show notes. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining me tonight. This evening we'll be returning to Little Women, but first, just take some time here to relax. Have a nice, big stretch and give your body permission to release any tension still lingering from the day. Breathe in through your nose and fill your belly with a nice, big breath. Now sigh it all out. You have nothing left to do today. Get a good night's sleep. So just breathe gently and I will recap on our last episode. Previously, Joe had been trying to keep the news about Mr. Brooke and Meg a secret, but no sooner did she see Laurie than he knew there was something she wasn't telling him. Later that week, Joe went to the post box in the woods and returned with a letter for Meg. The missive appeared to be an impassioned love letter from Mr. Brooke, but Joe knew immediately it was Laurie and was furious with him. This hadn't been the first letter Meg had received. There had been a previous one which she had already responded to, and she was mortified. Joe ran to fetch the offending boy who was brought to Marmy and scolded. He seemed properly ashamed when Joe and Meg entered, and promised not to breathe a word of the incident to anyone. When he left, Joe felt badly about being so sullen with him and went to make amends, but she found him fuming in his room. Mr. Lawrence and Laurie had fallen out because Laurie wouldn't tell him what had occurred with the marches. Joe decided to mend the bond and the two made up over dinner. Christmas approached again and the girls had a wonderful time Beth in particular, as everyone wanted to make it extra special for her. Later that day, Laurie came back to the house with another Christmas present. In walked Mr. March, who wasn't expected till after New Year. The household erupted with tears of joy for a perfect end to a perfect Christmas day. And that is where we pick back up tonight, with Mr. March settling back into the family home. So just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Little Women. Chapter 22 Pleasant Meadows continued. 
There never was such a Christmas dinner as they had that day. The fat turkey was a sight to behold when Hannah sent him up, stuffed, browned, and decorated. So was the plum pudding, which melted in one's mouth. Likewise the jellies, in which Amy reveled like a fly in a honeypot. Everything turned out well, which was a mercy, Hannah said, for my mind was that flustered mum, but it's a miracle I didn't roast the pudding and stuff the turkey with raisins. Mr. Lawrence and his grandson dined with them, also Mr. Brooke, at whom Joe glowered darkly to Laurie's infinite amusement. Two easy chairs stood side by side at the head of the table, in which sat Beth and her father, feasting modestly on chicken and a little fruit. They drank healths, told stories, sang songs, reminisced as the old folks say, and had a thoroughly good time. A sleigh ride had been planned, but the girls would not leave their father, so the guests departed early, and as twilight gathered, the happy family sat together round the fire. Just a year ago, we were groaning over the dismal Christmas we expected to have. Do you remember? Asked Joe, breaking a short pause which had followed a long conversation about many things. Rather a pleasant year on the whole, said Meg, smiling at the fire and congratulating herself on having treated Mr. Brooke with dignity. I think it's been a pretty hard one, observed Amy, watching the light shine on her ring with thoughtful eyes. I'm glad it's over, because we've got you back, whispered Beth who sat on her father's knee. Rather a rough road for you to travel, my little pilgrims, especially the latter part of it. But you have got on bravely. I think the burdens are in a fair way to tumble off very soon, said Mr. March, looking with fatherly satisfaction at the four young faces gathered round him. How do you know? Did mother tell you? asked Joe. Not much. Straws show which way the wind blows. I've made several discoveries today. Oh, tell us what they are, said Meg, who sat beside him. Here is one. And taking up the hand which lay on the arm of his chair, he pointed to the roughened forefinger, a burn on the back and two or three little hard spots on the palm. I remember a time when this hand was white and smooth, and your first care was to keep it so. It was very pretty then, but to me it is much prettier now, for in the seeming blemishes I read a little history. A burnt offering has been made to vanity, This hardened palm has earned something better than blisters. I'm sure the sewing done by these pricked fingers will last a long time. 
So much good will went into the stitches, Meg, my dear. I value the womanly skill which keeps home happy more than white hands or fashionable accomplishments. I'm proud to shake this good, industrious little hand, and I hope I shall not soon be asked to give it away. If Meg had wanted a reward for hours of patient labor, she received it in the hearty pressure of her father's hand and the approving smile he gave her. What about Joe? Please say something nice. She has tried so hard, been so very, very good to me, said Beth in her father's ear. He laughed and looked across at the tall girl who sat opposite with an unusually mild expression in her face. Hmm, in spite of the curly crop, I don't see the son Joe whom I left a year ago, said Mr. March. I see a young lady who pins her collar straight, laces her boots neatly, and neither whistles, talks slang, nor lies on the rug as she used to do. Her face is rather thin and pale just now, with watching and anxiety. But I like to look at it, for it has grown gentler, and her voice is lower. She doesn't bounce, but moves quietly, and takes care of a certain little person in a motherly way which delights me. I rather miss my wild girl, but if I get a strong helpful, tender-hearted woman in her place, I shall feel quite satisfied. I don't know whether the shearing sobered our black sheep, but I do know that all in Washington I couldn't find anything beautiful enough to be brought with the five and twenty dollars my good girl sent me. Joe's keen eyes were rather dim for a minute, and her thin face grew rosy in the firelight as she received her father's praise, feeling that she did deserve a portion of it. Now, Beth, said Amy, longing for her turn but ready to wait. There's so little of her, I'm afraid to say much for fear she will slip away altogether. Though she is not so shy as she used to be, began her father cheerfully, but recollecting how he had nearly lost her, he held her close, saying tenderly with her cheek against his own, I've got you safe, my Beth, and I'll keep you so, please God. After a minute's silence, he looked down at Amy, who sat on the cricket at his feet, and said with a caress of the shining hair, I observed that Amy took drumsticks at dinner, ran errands for her mother all afternoon, gave Meg her place tonight, and has waited on everyone with patience and good humor. I also observed that she does not fret much, nor look in the glass, and has not even mentioned a very pretty ring which she wears so I conclude that she has learned to think of other people more and of herself less, and has decided to try and mold her character as carefully as she molds her little clay figures 
I'm glad of this. Although I should be very proud of a graceful statue made by her, I shall be infinitely prouder of a lovable daughter with a talent for making life beautiful to herself and others. What are you thinking of, Beth? Asked Joan when Amy had thanked her father and told about her ring. I read in Pilgrim's Progress today how, after many troubles, Christian and Hopeful come to a pleasant green meadow where lilies bloomed all year round, and there they rested, happily as we do now, before they went on to their journey's end, answered Beth, adding as she slipped out of her father's arms and went to the instrument. It's singing time now, and I want to be in my old place. I'll try to sing the song of the shepherd's boy, which the pilgrims heard. I made the music for father because he likes the verses. So, sitting at the dear little piano, Beth softly touched the keys, and in the sweet voice they had never thought to hear again, sang to her own accompaniment the quaint hymn, which was a singularly fitting song for her. He that is down need fear no fall, he that is low no pride, he that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. I am content with what I have, little be it or much, and Lord, contentment still I crave, because thou savest such. Fullness to them a burden is that go on pilgrimage. Here little, and hereafter bliss, is best from age to age. Chapter 23 Aunt March Settles the Question Like bees swarming after their queen, Mother and daughters hovered about Mr. March the next day, neglecting everything to look at, wait upon, and listen to the new invalid who was in a fair way to be killed by kindness. As he sat, propped up in a big chair by Beth's sofa with the other three close by, and Hannah popping in her head now and then to peek at the dear man. Nothing seemed needed to complete their happiness, but something was needed, and the elder ones felt it, though no one confessed the fact. Mr. and Mrs. March looked at one another with an anxious expression as their eyes followed Meg, Joe had sudden fits of sobriety and was seen to shake her fist at Mr. Brooke's umbrella, which had been left in the hall. Meg was absent-minded, shy, and silent, started when the bell rang, and coloured when John's name was mentioned. Amy said, Everyone seemed waiting for something and couldn't settle down which was odd, since father was safe at home. 
and Beth innocently wondered why their neighbors didn't run over as usual. Lori went by in the afternoon, and seeing Meg at the window seemed suddenly possessed with a melodramatic fit, for he fell down on one knee in the snow, tore his hair, and clasped his hands imploringly as if begging some boon. And when Meg told him to behave himself and go away, he wrung his imaginary tears out of his handkerchief and staggered round the corner as if in utter despair. What does that goose mean? said Meg, laughing and trying to look unconscious. He's showing you how your John will go on by and by. Touching, isn't it? answered Joe scornfully. Don't say, my John, it isn't proper or true. But Meg's voice lingered over the words as if they sounded pleasant to her. Please don't plague me, Joe. I've told you I don't care much about him. There isn't anything to be said. We are all to be friendly and go on as before. We can't. Something has been said, and Laurie's mischief has spoiled you for me. I see it, and so does Mother. You're not like your old self a bit, and seem ever so far away from me. I don't mean to plague you, and will bear it like a man, but I do wish that all was settled. I hate to wait, so if you mean to ever do it, make haste and have it over quickly, said Joan. Pettishly. I can't say anything till he speaks, and he won't, because father said I was too young, began Meg, bending over her work with a strange little smile, which suggested that she did not quite agree with her father on that point. If he did speak, he wouldn't know what to say, but would cry or blush or let him have his own way instead of giving a good, decided no. I'm not so silly and weak as you think. I know just what I should say. I've been planning it all, so I needn't be taken unawares. There's no knowing what may happen, and I wish to be prepared. Joe couldn't help smiling at the important air which Meg had unconsciously assumed, and which was as becoming as the pretty colour varying in her cheeks. Would you mind telling me what you'd say? Asked Joe, more respectfully. Not at all. You're sixteen now, quite old enough to be my confidant. My experience will be useful to you, by and by, perhaps, in your own affairs of this sort. Don't mean to have any. It's fun to watch other people philander, but I should feel like a fool doing it myself, said Joe, looking alarmed at the thought. I think not, if you liked anyone very much, and he liked you. Meg spoke as if to herself and glanced out at the lane where she had often seen lovers walking together in the summer twilight thought you were going to tell your speech to that man, said Joe, rudely shortening her sister's little reverie. 
Oh, I should merely say, quite calmly and decidedly, thank you, Mr. Brooke. You are very kind, but I agree with Father that I am too young to enter into any engagement at present, so please say no more, but let us be friends as we were. Hmm. That's stiff and cool enough. I don't believe you'll ever say it, and I know he won't be satisfied if you do. If he goes on like the rejected lovers in books, you'll give in rather than hurt his feelings. No, I won't. I shall tell him I've made up my mind and shall walk out of the room with dignity. Meg rose as she spoke and was just going to rehearse the dignified exit when a step in the hall made her fly into her seat and begin to sew as fast as if her life depended on finishing that particular scene in a given time. Joe smothered a laugh at the sudden change, and when someone gave a modest tap, opened the door with a grim aspect which was anything but hospitable. Uh, good afternoon. Came to get my umbrella. That is... To see how your father finds himself today, said Mr. Brooke, getting a trifle confused as his eyes went from one telltale face to the other. It's very well, but he's in the rack. I'll get him and tell him you're here. And having jumbled her father and the umbrella well together in her reply, Joe slipped out of the room to give Meg a chance to make her speech and air her dignity. But the instant she vanished, Meg began to sidle toward the door, murmuring, Mother will like to see you. Pray, sit down. I'll call her. Don't go. Are you afraid of me, Margaret? And Mr. Brooke looked so hurt that Meg thought she must have done something very rude. She blushed up to the little curls on her forehead, for he had never called her Margaret before, and she was surprised to find how natural and sweet it seemed to hear him say it. Anxious to appear friendly and at her ease, she put out her hand with a confiding gesture and said gratefully, How can I be afraid when you have been so kind to father? I only wish I could thank you for it. Shall I tell you how? Asked Mr. Brooke, holding the small hand fast with both his own and looking down at Meg with so much love in the brown eyes that her heart began to flutter and she both longed to run away and to stop and listen. Oh no, please don't. I'd rather not, she said, trying to withdraw her hand and looking frightened in spite of her denial. I won't trouble you. I only want to know if you care for me a little, Meg. I love you so much, dear, added Mr. Brooke tenderly. This was the moment for the calm, proper speech. But Meg didn't make it. She forgot every word of it hung her head and answered, I don't know. 
so softly that John had to stoop down to catch the foolish little reply. He seemed to think it was worth the trouble, for he smiled to himself as if quite satisfied, pressed the plump hand gratefully, and said in his most persuasive tone, Will you try and find out? I want to know so much. I can't work with any heart until I learn whether I am to have my reward in the end or not. I'm too young, faltered Meg, wondering why she was so flustered, yet rather enjoying it. I'll wait. And in the meantime, you could be learning to like me. Would it be a very hard lesson, dear? But I chose to learn. But... She paused. Please choose to learn, Meg. I love to teach. And this is easier than German. Broke in John, getting possession of the other hand so that she had no way of hiding her face as he bent to look into it. His tone was properly beseeching, Stealing a shy look at him, Meg saw that his eyes were merry as well as tender, and that he wore the satisfied smile of one who had no doubt of his success. This nettled her. Annie Moffat's foolish lesson in coquetry came into her mind, and the love of power, which sleeps in the bosoms of the best of little women, woke up all of a sudden and took possession of her. She felt excited and strange, not knowing what else to do, followed a capricious impulse, and withdrawing her hands, said petulantly, I don't choose. Please go away and let me be. Poor Mr. Brooke looked as if his lovely castle in the air was tumbling about his ears for he had never seen Meg in such a mood before. It rather bewildered him. Do you really mean that? He asked anxiously, following her as she walked away. Yes, I do. I don't want to be worried about such things. Father says I needn't. It's too soon, and I'd rather not. Mayn't I hope you'll change your mind by and by? I'll wait and say nothing till you've had more time. Don't play with me, Meg. I didn't think that of you. Don't think of me at all. I'd rather you wouldn't, said Meg, taking a naughty satisfaction in trying her lover's patience and her own power. He was grave and pale now, and looked decidedly more like the novel heroes whom she admired he neither slapped his forehead nor tramped about the room as they did. He just stood, looking at her so wistfully, so tenderly, that she found her heart relenting in spite of herself. What would have happened next, I cannot say, if Aunt March had not come hobbling in at this interesting minute. The old lady couldn't resist her longing to see her nephew, for she had met Laurie during her airing, and hearing of Mr. March's arrival, 
drove straight out to see him. The family were all busy in the back part of the house, and she had made her way quietly in, hoping to surprise them. She did surprise two of them, so much that Meg started as if she had seen a ghost, and Mr. Brooke vanished into the study. Bless me, what's all this? said the old lady with a rap of her cane as she glanced from the pale young gentleman to the scarlet young lady. It's father's friend. I'm so surprised to see you, stammered Meg, feeling that she was in for a lecture now. That's evident, returned Aunt March, sitting down. But what's father's friend saying to make you look like a peony? There's mischief going on, and I insist upon knowing what it is, with another rap. We were only talking. Mr. Brooke came for his umbrella, began Meg, wishing that Mr. Brooke and the umbrella were safely out of the house. Brooke? boy's tutor. Ah, I understand now. I know all about it. Joe blundered into a wrong message in one of your father's letters and I made her tell me. You haven't gone and accepted him, child, cried Aunt March, looking scandalized. Hush, he'll hear. Shan't I call mother? said Meg, much troubled. Not yet. I have something to say to you that must free from my mind at once. Tell me, do you mean to marry this cook? If you do, not one penny of my money ever goes to you. Remember that, and be a sensible girl, said the old lady impressively. Now, Aunt March possessed imperfection the art of rousing the spirit of opposition in the gentlest people, and enjoyed doing it. The best of us have a spice of perversity in us, especially when we are young and in love. If Aunt March had begged Meg to accept John Brooke, she would probably have declared she couldn't think of it, but as she was peremptorily ordered not to like him, she immediately made up her mind that she would. Inclination as well as perversity made the decision easy, and being already much excited, Meg opposed the old lady with unusual spirit. I shall marry whom I please, Aunt March, and you can leave your money to anyone you like she said, nodding her head with a resolute air. Heighty tighty, is that the way you take my advice, miss? You'll be sorry for it by and by when you've tried love in a cottage and found it a failure. It can't be worse than one some people find in big houses, retorted Meg. Aunt March put on her glasses and took a look at the girl for she did not know her in this new mood. Meg hardly knew herself. She felt so brave and independent, so glad to defend John 
and assert her right to love him if she liked. Aunt March saw that she had begun wrong, and after a little pause, made a fresh start, saying as mildly as she could, Now, Meg, my dear, be reasonable and take my advice. I mean it kindly. Don't want you to spoil your whole life by making a mistake at the beginning. You ought to marry well and help your family. It is your duty to make a rich match, and it ought to be impressed upon you. Father and mother don't think so. They like John, though he is poor. Your parents, my dear, have no more worldly wisdom than a pair of babies. I'm glad of it, replied Meg stoutly. Aunt March took no notice, but went on with her lecture. This rook is poor and hasn't got any rich relations, has he? No, but he has many warm friends. You can't live on friends. Try it and see how cool they'll grow. He hasn't any business, has he? Not yet. Mr. Lawrence is going to help him. That won't last long. James Lawrence is a crotchety old fellow and not to be depended on. So you intend to marry a man without money, position, or business, and go on working harder than you do now when you might be comfortable all your days by minding me and doing better. I thought you had more sense, Meg. I couldn't do better if I wasted half my life. John is good and wise. He's got heaps of talent. He's willing to work and sure to get on. He's so energetic and brave. Everyone likes and respects him, and I'm proud to think he cares for me, though I'm so poor and young and silly, said Meg, looking prettier than ever in her earnestness. He knows you have got rich relations, child. That's the secret of his liking, I suspect. Aunt March, how dare you say such a thing? John is above such meanness, and I won't listen to you a minute if you talk so, said Meg indignantly, forgetting everything but the injustice of the old lady's suspicions. My John wouldn't marry for money any more than I would. We are willing to work, and we mean to wait. I'm not afraid of being poor, for I've been happy so far, and I know I shall be with him because he loves me. Meg stopped there, remembering all of a sudden that she hadn't made up her mind, that she had told her John to go away, and that he might be overhearing her inconsistent remarks. Aunt March was very angry, for she had set her heart on having her pretty niece make a fine match and something in the girl's happy, young face made the lonely old woman feel both sad and sour. Well, I wash my hands of the whole affair. You're a willful child, and you've lost more than you know by this piece of folly. No, I won't stop. I'm disappointed in you, 
and haven't spirits to see your father now. Don't expect anything from me when you are married. Your Mr. Brooks' friends must take care of you. I'm done with you forever. And slamming the door in Meg's face, Aunt March drove off in high dudgeon. She seemed to take all the girl's courage with her, for when left alone, Meg stood for a moment, undecided whether to laugh or cry. Before she could make up her mind, she was taken possession of by Mr. Brooke, who said all in one breath, I couldn't help hearing Meg. Thank you for defending me, and Aunt March for proving that you do care for me a little bit. I didn't know how much till she abused you, began Meg. And I needn't go away. May stay and be happy, may I, dear? Here was another fine chance to make the crushing speech and the stately exit, but Meg never thought of doing either, and disgraced herself forever in Joe's eyes by meekly whispering, Yes, John, and hiding her face on Mr. Brooks' waistcoat. Fifteen minutes after Aunt March's departure, Joe came softly downstairs, paused an instant at the parlor door, and hearing no sound within, nodded and smiled with a satisfied expression, saying to herself, She has seen him away as we planned, and that affair is settled. I'll go and hear the fun and have a good laugh over it. But poor Joe never got her laugh for she was transfixed upon the threshold by a spectacle which held her there, staring with her mouth nearly as wide open as her eyes. Going into exult over a fallen enemy and to praise a strong-minded sister for the banishment of an objectionable lover certainly was a shock to behold the aforesaid enemy serenely sitting on the sofa with the strong-minded sister enthroned upon his knee and wearing an expression of the most abject submission. Joe gave a sort of gasp as if a cold shower bath had suddenly fallen upon her for such an unexpected turning of the tables actually took her breath away. At the odd sound, The lovers turned and saw her. Meg jumped up, looking both proud and shy, but that man, as Joe called him, actually laughed and said cruelly as he kissed the astonished newcomer, Sister Joe, congratulate us. That was adding insult to injury. It was altogether too much and making some wild demonstration with her hands, Joe vanished without a word. Rushing upstairs, she startled the invalids by exclaiming tragically as she burst into the room, Oh, do somebody go down quick. John Brooke is acting dreadfully, and Meg likes it. 
Mr. and Mrs. March left the room with speed, and casting herself upon the bed, Joe cried and scolded tempestuously as she told the awful news to Beth and Amy. The little girls, however, considered it a most agreeable and interesting event. Joe got little comfort from them, so she went up to her refuge in the garret and confided her troubles to the rats. Nobody ever knew what went on in the parlor that afternoon, but a great deal of talking was done, and quiet Mr. Brooke astonished his friends by the eloquence and spirit with which he pleaded his suit, told his plans, and persuaded them to arrange everything just as he wanted it. The tea bell rang before he had finished describing the paradise which he meant to earn for Meg, and he proudly took her in to supper, both looking so happy Joe hadn't the heart to be jealous or dismal. Amy was very much impressed by John's devotion and Meg's dignity. Beth beamed at them from a distance, while Mr. and Mrs. March surveyed the young couple with such tender satisfaction that it was perfectly evident Aunt March was right in calling them as unworldly as a pair of babies. No one ate much, but everyone looked very happy and the old room seemed to brighten up amazingly when the first romance of the family began there. You can't say nothing pleasant ever happens now, can you, Meg? said Amy, trying to decide how she would group the lovers in a sketch she was planning to make. No, I'm sure I can't. How much has happened since I said that? Seems a year ago, answered Meg, who was in a blissful dream, lifted far above such common things as bread and butter. The joys come close upon the sorrows this time, but I rather think the changes have begun, said Mrs. March. In most families, there comes now and then a year of full events. This has been such a one but it ends well after all. I hope the next will end better, muttered Joe, who found it very hard to see Meg absorbed in a stranger before her face, for Joe loved a few persons very dearly and dreaded to have their affection lost or lessened in any way. I hope the third year from this will end better. I mean it shall if I live to work out my plans, said Mr. Brooke, smiling at Meg, as if everything had become possible to him now. Doesn't it seem very long to wait? asked Amy, who was in a hurry for the wedding. I've got so much to learn before I shall be ready. Seems a short time to me, answered Meg, with a sweet gravity in her face never seen there before. You have only to wait. I am to do the work, said John, beginning his labors by picking up Meg's napkin 
with an expression which caused Joe to shake her head and then to say to herself with an air of relief as the front door banged, Here comes Laurie. Now we shall have some sensible conversation. But Joe was mistaken, for Laurie came prancing in, overflowing with good spirits, bearing a bridal-looking bouquet for Mrs. John Brooke, and evidently laboring under the delusion that the whole affair had been brought about by his excellent management. I knew Brooke would have it all his own way. He always does. When he makes up his mind to accomplish anything, it's done, though the sky falls, said Laurie, when he had presented his offering and his congratulations. Much obliged for that recommendation. I take it as a good omen for the future and invite you to my wedding on the spot, answered Mr. Brooke, who felt at peace with all mankind, even his mischievous pupil. I'll come if I'm at the ends of the earth, for the sight of Joe's face alone on that occasion will be worth the long journey. You don't look festive, Mum. What's the matter? asked Laurie following her into a corner of the parlour, whither all had adjourned to greet Mr. Lawrence. I don't approve of the match, but I've made up my mind to bear it and shall not say a word against it, said Joe solemnly. You can't know how hard it is for me to give up Meg, she continued with a little quiver in her voice. You don't give her up, you only go halves said Laurie, consolingly. I can never be the same again. I've lost my dearest friend, sighed Joe. You've got me, anyhow. Not good for March, I know, but I'll stand by you, Joe, all the days of my life. Upon my word, I will. And Laurie meant what he said. I know you will. I'm ever so much obliged. Always a great comfort to me, Teddy, returned Joe, gratefully shaking hands. Well, now, don't be dismal, there's a good fellow. It's all right, you see. Meg is happy. Brooke will fly around and get settled immediately. Grandpa will attend to him. It'll be very jolly to see Meg in her own little house. We'll have capital times after she's gone, for I shall be through college before long and we'll go abroad on some nice trip or other. Wouldn't that console you? I rather think it would. But there's no knowing what may happen in three years, said Joe thoughtfully. That's true. Then you wish you could take a look forward, see where we shall all be then? I do, returned Laurie. I think not. I might see something sad. Everyone looks so happy now. I don't believe they could be much improved. And Joe's eyes went slowly around the room, brightening as they looked, for the prospect was a pleasant one. Father and mother sat together, quietly reliving the first chapter of the romance, which for them began some twenty years ago. Amy was drawing the lovers, who sat apart, in a beautiful world of their own, the light of which touched their faces 
with a grace the little artist could not copy. Beth lay on her sofa, talking cheerily with her old friend, who held her little hand as if he felt that it possessed the power to lead him along the peaceful way she walked. Joe lounged in her favorite low seat with the grave, quiet look which best became her, and Dory, leaning on the back of her chair, his chin on a level with her curly head, smiled with his friendliest aspect nodded at her in the long glass which reflected them both. So the curtain falls upon Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. Whether it ever rises again depends upon the reception given the first act of the domestic drama called Little Women. Thank you.